0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California.
1: So this is the second Sunday of Pride Month, and as such, I want to talk about how the Bible has been used and of course misused on both sides, or by both sides of this LGBTQ debate. A lot of great scholarship has been done over the years to show that the Bible does not actually prohibit modern understandings of same-sex relationships, meaning committed, consensual, or loving same-sex relationships like we have today. The Bible doesn't prohibit them because the Bible, arguably, doesn't mention them. Probably because such relationships didn't exist back then, at least not like they do now. So instead, the same-sex behavior the Bible addresses and prohibits are things like pederasty, rape, and temple prostitution or idolatry. And we'll get into that here this morning, uh, as I think that's an important thing to understand And it's something we've covered before, actually, last year, but uh, I think it bears repeating because it's really such a complex topic. Um, But it's also an important one, I think, to understand as we, you know, dialogue with others in our lives about these issues. But before we get into, you know, unclobbering those passages in the scriptures this morning, uh, I want to talk about and lay a foundation of how I approach the scriptures in general, because I think that's important here. I think asking questions like, what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships is problematic for a few reasons, not the least of which is the fact that, as I just said, the Bible doesn't really talk about same-sex relationships. But that aside, such questions or statements like, The Bible clearly says, have you ever said that before? I've said that before. The Bible clearly says, well, the Bible kind of doesn't clearly say anything. Uh, The Bible says a lot of things, but clearly, I mean, uh, such statements like that often presuppose that the Bible is a unified singular document or a book with a clear message about anything. In a sense, there is no such thing as the book of the Bible such a book doesn't exist. What does exist is a library, a loose collection of sacred books, texts, and writings that sometimes correlate and support each other, but it just as many times do not. The Bible is a library. 66 individual Books, letters, poems, prophecies, folk tales, novellas, sagas, songs, etc. And it was written by dozens of different people over the course of centuries. And then later edited and compiled into one volume. You know, the book that we have somewhere in these pews. And then handed down to us, which is something... I'm confident the original authors of these texts uh, had no conception of, nor desire to see happen. I'm confident that the Apostle Paul would be utterly shocked that some of his letters that he wrote to his his fr- the friends that he had, you know, in these churches like Ephesus and Corinth. I I'd be willing to bet that he would be shocked that those letters have been uh, canonized into, you know the same, and put on the same level as Leviticus and the, and the Pentateuch and what he considered the Holy Scriptures, you know, the writings of Moses. I bet he'd be shocked to find that out. Imagine if I took all the books in my personal library at home, all of my books on Christian theology and philosophy and church history, and ripped out all the pages, and then, you know, put them all together and slapped a a, a new cover on it and said, look, I made a a whole new book out of these 20 or so books. <laughs> Would anybody think that, that I did that or you know, that that's possible to do? Well, of course not, right? But that's exactly what the Bible is. It's a library. It's a collection of very different documents and writings that in some ways relate, but in many ways do not. So the Bible should be thought of as a library, and who would ever ask a librarian? Can you imagine going down to your local public library and asking the person behind the front desks, "What is the main message of the books in your library? <laughs> what, what is what is their essence? What, what are they trying to get across to us? What's their main point?" Who would ask such a question, right? So you know. That's exactly what we sound like, I think, when we ask such questions about the Bible or say things like, you know, the Bible clearly says. That doesn't mean that there aren't some common themes or threads in the Bible. Of course there are. Um, But it's a mistake to assume that they're found throughout or that they're presented and represented always in the same way. And so I'm approaching this topic today of what does the Bible say about same-sex relationships with that in mind. And I'm also approaching the text, the Bible, um, the, you know, with, the, with this also in mind, that the quest for an affirming reading of the Bible, and there is a quest for an affirming reading of the Bible today, uh, as well-intentioned as that is, my concern is that that quest inadvertently ties queer people's identity to this this book or to these books we call the Bible. Queer people's worth, humanity, and right to exist is not contingent upon what any book says or what any collection of sacred writings say. But I'm afraid the exact opposite is inferred when so many well-meaning and often progressive Christians, in an effort to maintain a high view of Scripture— work really hard to prove that the Bible is affirming, or at least not non-affirming. We need to stop giving the Bible that much power, I'm saying. We need to love queer folk more than we love the Bible. And I don't think one can do that if one is only affirming because, the, because they believe the Bible allows them to be. That's a problem, I think. I think that's what we call a conflict of interest and and dangerously leaves a back door open. In other words, what if some really compelling scholarship comes along that demonstrates that Jesus or the the scriptures are actually not affirming or uh, that they're actually condemning of our modern version, even our modern versions of same-sex relationships? What if somebody is able to demonstrate that the Bible really is like that? If one still values scripture more than anything else, one is creating a situation whereby their affirmation and love of queer folks is now in jeopardy. That's a problem, I think. That's a conflict of interest, I think. So I think we need to close that back door and thereby say to our queer friends and family there is nothing in the Bible, there is no scholarship (laughs) that can be done that will make me turn my back on you. That will make me condemn you again and say you are doomed. Nothing in that book. There is no PhD that can convince me to do that to you again. That, to me, is the most affirming thing we could possibly say as Christians to our queer friends and family. So, We need to let go of any semblance of biblical inerrancy, I'm saying. I, I believe we need to let go of uh, any preoccupation with biblical authority. The Bible can be authoritative for us still, but uh, we have to let go of this preoccupation with it, you know, or this super high view of Scripture that often comes with, biblical inerrancy, this, uh, this doctrine of biblical inerrancy. All right, that's an important thing to understand first today about my approach to the scriptures in this matter. I felt it necessary to lay that foundation, and um, I'm looking forward to a conversation about that with you. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. That being said, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm all for deconstructing these six so-called clobber passages. And by the way, they're called clobber passages. I didn't come up with that name. Um, Somebody else did. They're called the six clobber passages because of course they've been used to clobber queer people over the head with for generations. I'm all for deconstructing them. And if if that's what it takes to make some people affirming, fine. Good. Uh, Ultimately, I'm interested in you know, setting people free and, and helping people get to a place where they're affirming of, uh, you know, LGBTQ folks. But the best thing we can do is fundamentally alter the way we view the Bible so that we don't have to do this forever. Um, and so that we're as affirming as we can be. In other words, I don't want to just treat the symptoms of the disease. I want to cure the underlying disease itself. I just, I don't want to just keep pulling people out of the river I want to go upstream and find out why they're falling in the river in the first place and put a stop to that. Changing the way we view the Bible is the only way to do that in this situation of LGBTQ inclusion in the church. But that being said, let's dive into these six so-called, so-called clobber passages. The first one is Genesis 19, which is, of course, the famous story, the infamous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. As the story goes, two angels were sent by the Lord to check out the the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to see how wicked they were uh, and to possibly pass, you know, final judgment on them, to destroy them. As Ezekiel 1649 tells us, the sin of Sodom was that she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Hear that again. According to Ezekiel 16, the sin of Sodom was that she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, read decadent and wealthy, and they did not help the poor and the needy. As the story goes, the two angels who went into the Twin Cities were welcomed into Lot's house, who of course was the nephew of Abraham and the so-called only righteous man in town. The angels were welcomed into Lot's house, and this was an act of hospitality because these angels were strangers to Lot and his family. Keep that in mind. This was an act of hospitality, which was a big deal in the ancient world and proof that, you know, somebody was good if you welcome strangers. These angels were welcomed to the house, but soon the villagers, some of the male villagers came knocking at the door demanding that Lot send these two strangers out so that they may gang rape them lot of being a a good man of course refuses and offers this this crowd his own daughter instead so much for the so-called righteous lot right interesting story um But again, the sin of Sodom was not same-sex behavior. Keep in mind that these men were about to rape Lot's daughter. But rather, the sin of Sodom was the general decadence of the city, their greed, their inherent violent nature, their their cruelty, their lack of care for strangers, their concern for the poor and the needy, their, their mistreatment of the vulnerable, like these two men, these two angels. Remember, inhospitality was a big deal in the ancient Near East. It's a big deal. And again, this was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, not same-sex behavior. So that's how you unclobber Genesis 19. The next two clobber passages can be taken together because they're basically reiterations of of each other, and they both come out of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13 both say this. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination, end quote. The first thing to understand is that the Hebrew word for abomination here is tovah. Tovah did not mean vile or disgusting or subhuman. Tovah had to do with violating cultural or religious customs and not evil actions that are universally morally wrong, like, like, say, murder. For example, the same word tova was used to describe eating shellfish or eating pork. That was tova. Charging interest on loans was tova. Having sex with your menstruating wife, excuse me, was also called tova. All of these things were described as abominations before the Lord, and yet I would. Be willing to bet you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian today who would think that charging interest on loans or eating pork or shellfish or having sex with with your wife while she's on her period are somehow abominations or antithetical to the nature of God. It's also important to keep in mind that Leviticus was written specifically to Jews. It was written by Israelites for Israelites. It was not written for Gentiles, us It was not written to Israel's Gentile neighbors as well as a way of telling them what God demanded of them. In fact, if anything, these customs, these traditions and laws were seen as a way of separating and and distinguishing Israel from their neighbors. The Israelites certainly believed that their God was the God of the nations too, that God would ultimately judge the nations. They believed that but they didn't believe God would judge the nations for not keeping the law of Moses. That was for Israel and Israel alone. The Israelites did not believe that their neighbors had to be circumcised or keep kosher or obey all these litany of rules and laws. They believed that their neighbors should practice justice and righteousness, for God shall judge them accordingly. But the book of the law, the law of Moses, the the Torah, this was for Israel and Israel alone, and it was a way of separating and distinguishing them as the people of God from their Gentile neighbors. They did not think that their neighbors would be condemned by God for eating pork or shellfish or having sex with their menstruating wives or same or having same-sex relationships or, same-sex, or practicing same-sex behavior. So again, Leviticus was not written as a law code for everyone. It was written by Israelites for Israelites. The fact that this is completely ignored by evangelicals who claim to have a high view of Scripture is really ironic to me. You cannot have a high view of Scripture and ignore authorial intent or the historical context of the Scriptures. It doesn't work that way. If you claim to revere the Scriptures hold the scripture sacrosanct and yet ignore things like authorial intent and historical context. That's it doesn't work that way. So that's how you enclobber those two passages in Leviticus. The next passage we're going into the New Testament now. The next passage we'll look at is Romans chapter one verse 26 through 27 where the apostle Paul writes this. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. In the same way, also, the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, I just feel like I should have prefaced this this whole talk with a trigger warning. I can understand how some of you may be here and, or joining us online or listening to the podcast are just having an emotional reaction even to hearing these texts read in, in a church setting. I'm, I'm sorry, excuse me. Paul, like many people in the ancient world, did not believe that same-sex behavior was driven by a sexual orientation you were born with nor nowhere will you find them discussing a inherited uh, sexual orientation, a biological genetic thing you're born with that predisposes you to you know, same-sex attraction. That's just, that understanding of human sexuality arguably did not exist 2000 years ago in the ancient Near East, or for that matter, in the ancient Mediterranean Greco-Roman world. What was believed Uh, was that same-sex behavior was the result of too much heterosexual lust. Did you hear that? In other words, it was a surplus of lust, heterosexual lust. In other words, if you had an excess of, if you were just too lusty in general, if you just had too much sexual desire, heterosexual desire, it would overflow and, and present itself eventually into non-heterosexual expressions, into same-sex attraction and same-sex sex. sex. And this is what made it sinful in Paul's eyes. As he says here in our passage, for this reason, God gave them up to their degrading passions. The problem was their passions. In the same way, drunkenness was labeled as a sin, not because drinking was sinful in the Bible. Everybody drank wine because it killed pathogens in the water and that kind of thing, but it was socially, culturally acceptable. Drunkenness was a sin, not the drinking of wine or alcohol. It was the excess was sinful. Do you understand that? See how that works? The same thing applies to lust and sex in general. It was, it was same-sex sex was supposedly born out of an excess and a lack of self-control, That's what they thought. It was born out of a lack of self-control, which was by definition sinful in Paul's eyes. Anything that came out of excess and a lack of self-control was immediately labeled as sinful. Paul was a Stoic in some ways. Stoicism was a form of Greek philosophy that the Apostle Paul bought into. So, But this this was the root of same-sex behavior for Paul and many others at that time. It was born out of an excess of lust. Nevertheless, Paul does label here, he does label same-sex behavior as unnatural. I don't know what the exact Greek word is, but it's translated into the English as unnatural here in Romans 1. But he also says that for men to have long hair. is unnatural and therefore sinful. My guess is you'd be hard-pressed to find an evangelical today who believes that men with long hair are, you know, can't be Christian and are doomed to a fate worse than death and hellfire. What I'm saying is it's impossible impossible to divorce Paul's view of same-sex behavior from his first-century cultural context and the patriarchal social and sexual biases of his world. His whole theory around men's long hair is born out of the social customs and the gender customs and the cultural ideas of his day and time. Same thing should be applied to his view on same-sex relationships and same-sex behavior. born out of the patriarchy of the day. It's it's tied to the patriarchy of the day, the gender roles of the day, the the social customs of the culture at hand, the sexual biases present. Therefore, when Christians use texts like Romans 1 today against LGBTQ folks, they are unknowingly, or perhaps knowingly, just importing first century social um, customs and um, sanctifying them. In essence, saying, yeah, the way the Greco Roman world in the, in the first century, uh, you know, Near East thought about sex and gender roles, that was of God. That was pure revelation. Their ideas about hair length for men and women, that was divine revelation. Right? And so those ideas are used today specifically around same-sex relationships uh, to basically hold us all hostage with it. But that's how you unclobber Romans 1. The last two clobber passages are very similar to each other in that they're both just lists of sins that keep you out of the kingdom of God. The first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And it says this, Do you not know that all wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, whatever that means, robbers. None of these will inherit the kingdom. And then 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. For the lawless and the disobedient, the the godless and the sinful, the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their father or mother, or or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, or whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, neither shall they inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's in these two passages that the English word homosexual first appears in the Bible, and that not until 1947 in what was, uh, what is the Revised Standard Version. Not until 1947 is the word homosexual found in the Bible, and it's found just in these two passages I just read. Um, These two Greek words being translated into homosexual are malakoi and arsenicontai. Malakoi and arsenicontai. The translators in 1947 actually uh, later admitted their error And these words have since been retranslated in the new revised standard edition. These words have been retranslated into male prostitute and sodomite, which is the translation I'm quoting from today. But you can still find these words translated as homosexual in places like the NIV and the New American Standard. Now, what do those words really mean? That's the twenty thousand dollar question: Malakoi and Arsinocontai. Well, nobody really knows. It's key to understand that when these texts were written two thousand years ago, same-sex behavior was basically limited to two places in this society. Same-sex behavior was limited to basically two places. One, temple prostitution. You could go down to a temple. I forget which gods or deities were worshipped this way, but essentially. You could go and pay a prostitute at a temple, both both male or female, and engage in sex magic. It was a kind of worship. The other place same-sex behavior was commonly practiced back then is what is called pederasty. This is where men of certain high social status, wealth, and prestige would, would often have male consorts. This was seen as a kind of status symbol. It was widely accepted, and these men were also in heterosexual marriages, but it was seen as a kind of social or status symbol to have a young male consort. Now, these uh, young men in these relationships, these were often exploitative relationships. This was a form of sex slavery. These young boys were often compelled to do this against their will. It was, they were seen as property. They were like slaves, like. Slaves elsewhere in the society. And it's not hard to imagine that this is why Paul preached against it, against this kind of practice, as it was exploitative and a form of slavery. These young boys were, again, essentially property for wealthy and powerful men. It's easy to understand why Paul might condemn such exploitative and abusive practices. So it's possible, it's possible that this is the proper interpretation of malakoi and arsenicontai, temple prostitution and pederasty, rather than just any and all same-sex behavior. Maybe that's persuasive for you, but it is for many. So that's how you unclobber the passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, and that's the six clobber passages this morning. We went through that really fast. <laughs> There's a lot to, and there's a lot more work that's been done on those passages by the likes of Kathy Baldock and Colby Martin, Matthew Vines, and they, lots of good resources, resources online for all that. And if you're interested, I encourage you to go there. But uh, that's, that's the end of my, my uh, talk this morning on all that. And um, I want to open it up for conversation, as we always do, or questions or comments about any of this regarding, you know, what I said at the beginning my view of scripture as, um, you know, not a singular, singular unified book or nor something that we should hold over LGBTQ people's heads, you know. Um, but anyway, any, any questions or comments about any of this today, clobber passages or otherwise or anything else you want to discuss about this? Yeah, Randy, let me get you the mic. Sure. I was just... um. Wondering about the, the passage in Jude, when it talks about um, Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh. Oh, you know I forgot the, about that one. Yeah, what's, what's yeah. that one say? Um, it's, it's likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. And they've heard it explained that the strange flesh they were talking about were angels, because um, men have a kind of flesh, animals have a kind of flesh, oh, and yeah. angels have a kind of flesh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you heard any explanation
0: for... Sodom and Gomorrah in that context
1: of Jude. No, I haven't, but that sounds that sounds like an interesting point. I mean, you just basically unclobbered it kind of. Uh, but again, you know, does it unclobber it? I don't know. I, you know, if 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 you asked me. Do I really believe the Bible is affirming of same-sex behavior? No, I don't. I I think the Bible is quite patriarchal. And, and you know, again, we're talking about the Bible as a book here. The scriptures in general, I don't find to be affirming of um, egalitarian gender roles. I think it's very patriarchal, and I think that's part and parcel to its views on human sexuality in general. Um, that uh, and Kathy Baldock does a lot of great work on this anyway. Um, but yeah yeah that's interesting. Uh, Max, yeah, could you have the mic to Max-
0: just hold it up but I want to, the Greek hey Max,
1: could you hold take your just it sounds really muffled. could you take your mask off, thanks?
0: Okay. Uh, I was just gonna say I looked it up um, the,
1: I think it's also the mic.
0: Yeah, it's a trick
1: mic. <laughs> uh, I'd be interested in seeing the Greek on it, but I mean the whole Sodom and Gomorrah interpretation. Here, let me give you this. In mic. the Old Testament, it's this stuff. one. This one's working. Yeah,
0: is uh, just talks about how the sin of Sodom is what they did to the strangers in their midst, right, and the visitors, and they literally try to rape the visitors, and so strange there. It says going after strange flesh could very easily be stranger, right? So, which is literally the story we get from the Old Testament, too. I don't know that to be the, the case, but I just looked it up real fast, and that looks like a pretty straightforward explanation. Strange could just mean
1: stranger. Yeah, no, I, I totally forgot about that passage in Jude. It's interesting. Um, yeah, somebody else here this morning, Erm, joining us virtually. Questions or comments? Yeah, Jason. No, I'm gonna give you the right mic. This is also a really
0: weird story. Like, it <laughs> oh, you, oh, you mean
1: the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. Sodom
0: and Gomorrah it doesn't like really read like a history lesson. It's like really distilled down to in a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of rapists living in a big city, and they just rape people when they show up. And like, why was Lot even living there? Why is there a righteous person in a place where the only Thing we know about them is that they rape people that show up this is a weird story it doesn't make i mean clearly they're trying to make a moral point i would they're trying really, to make a, a to make moral, moral
1: point. point moral
0: yeah and they're and it doesn't sound like a factual historical retelling of anything in my opinion of course not yeah. and so i would take that with a grain of salt
1: yeah, and honestly, I'm gonna use the trick mic here. Um, that story of Sodom and Gomorrah and it being a place that corrupted Lot and his family, because Lot was, you know, the right just Ah, give me that mic. <laughs> um that story probably should be read as an admonition to Israel. Keep in mind it. It's a story in the Hebrew tradition, an admonition to Israel to watch out for your neighbors because they'll corrupt you like they corrupted Lot and his family, right? When they ran to the hills and escaped the city, Lot's wife turned around and looked back longingly, we're told, at Sodom and Gomorrah and was immediately turned to a pillar of salt, again, demonstrating the, how the, you know being too close with your Gentile neighbors can corrupt you, right? And then, of course, what happens that night, we're told, in the cave with Lot and his daughters, the story gets even worse, Lot's daughters were told in their sorrow that now that they're no longer part of the city, they'll never marry and have children, so they get dad drunk, and they have relations with them that night, and they become pregnant through this act of incest, and their children go on to be supposedly the patriarchs of what? Uh, the Moabite nation, right? This this, too, we're t- is, I, think, I think the story is meant to function in the Hebrew tradition as a warning. Like, this is what happens when you cavort with the Gentiles and your sinful neighbors. You, too, will be corrupted, and God has called you out from them. Be separate, O Israel. I think that might be the underlying message for this, you know, uh, of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Does that make sense? I think I think it does. That's my theory. I, I haven't done any proper scholarship, but I'd be willing to bet some PhDs agree with me. <laughs> Anyway, um, other thoughts today, questions, remarks? Yeah, Leanne, no, nope, you're getting this one.
2: Yeah, just thinking about how often as a document the Bible is presented. Um, so I have uh, two kind of compendians of Shakespeare's works. I have the first folio from 1623, not the original of course, but uh, yeah, that would have been really cool where all of his works are presented in one big book. It's like a unified document. It's play after play after play. There's not really any annotations or notes with it. And it's just his complete works. And I think about how that's a one author, if you believe that there's also, there's some contention if it's one person, but say it is over a span of 20 years, writing these plays one after another. And then I think about how the Bible as a document is also often presented that way. It's a unified book, and every, you know, book is kind of one after the other after the other, and I didn't go to theological seminary, but... If I didn't know better, I'd be like, oh, it's just kind of this unified document. It's really hard to remember that this was written 500 years before that, that this was a letter to a congregation, that these are different kinds of documents. It's not just all plays like in Shakespeare's book. And I also own the Arden versions of Shakespeare's plays. These are huge books just of one play. And I'd say 60% of the text, 70% of the text is not the play, it's all the information on the play itself, the history of the productions, the entire background of Hamlet, the entire background of Julius Caesar, and then it shows the play. And I really wish that there was a way to like, just publish Leviticus alone in a separate book and just have all like that information before you read Leviticus or something like that, as opposed to this sort of home, like this like, unified document that it's often shown as. So I don't know if that's just me being nerdy, but um, I think it'd be interesting to present perhaps the books in a different way to show the difference.
1: Well, that was really good perspective. Thank you. Um, yeah, I wish Leviticus came with a companion text. <laughs> like, here's the backstory. Um, but uh, yeah, it's... it's but they don't, and we are, we're often like in the dark about how these texts really functioned for their original audience, or why they were written. Um, even words like malacoi and even words like you know like other Greek words like pistis, which is faith. You know, we don't really know how those words functioned in the kind of metaphysical linguistic structures of the ancient Near East or within the you know Greco-Roman world in which they came out of. It. You know, we we often assume like, oh, well, if we can translate it from Greek into English, then we understand it. No, every translation is also an interpretation. And the more, you know, work we do, the more we realize how their way of thinking is really alien to us. And even in you know, anthropology, you know, anthropological studies today, trying to, or even translation work between modern languages today into English, you find out that there's just some words that don't translate from Japanese into English or Spanish into English. They don't translate. Um, and those are modern languages coexisting in the same world. You know, um, What about languages that are dead? like like Koine Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. That's a dead language. We don't really understand it. Um, that's what we, you know, the more study you do, the more you realize how much you don't know, right? Anyway, we've really created a <laughs> a dilemma here this morning, per use, but um, really good point. Thanks. Um, we got a few minutes left and I just want to give Bob an opportunity to share a piece of liturgy to conclude us this morning. This will be our our concluding, uh, our benediction, as well as a piece of liturgy. So here you go.
0: And also, I wanted to say, I really appreciate all of you guys sharing um, as we do these discussions every week. It's one of my favorite things about being um, central and what we do a little bit differently. And especially as we talk about the Bible and what it means to look at it, I'm always reminded of how different Christian perspectives come at approaching the Bible. So I'm in a place now at this point in my life where I'm okay going, the Bible's wrong here. Like I like Paul. Paul is one of the most influential people in church history. Um, But sometimes he's wrong and, and that's okay. It's hard to think about that from the context we may have come from. Um, But we don't have to throw the Bible out entirely because there's things we disagree with, just like other historical works that we study. As we talk about God changing in each one of us, how much more so is that true throughout thousands of years of human history that the Bible records? People are growing and learning just like we are. So yeah, does the Bible talk about um, LGBTQ people the way that we understand what that means today? Of course not but it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't have something to say about what it means for us to be human and treat each other um, as all part of God's loving family. Um, So in light of that, I wanted to share these. uh, This is a a response that Reverend M. Barclay shared um, and she's part of In Fleshed. We've shared a lot of uh, their liturgy here uh, over the last couple of years, especially. But somebody asked them why they speak publicly about queerness um, and how vulnerable that is. And here's what they had to say. Every time the word gay rolls off my tongue, when the word queer or intersex or trans or non-binary or bisexual bless my lips, no matter what I'm talking about, I'm also always sending a love letter, casting a lifeline, praying a prayer, and yes, obviously, waving a flag. So many generations of silence and slurs, of words of violence and of quiet. Lonely, does anyone else in the world feel this way? My heart could burst every time I speak the imperfect but earnest attempts at finding my way to communicate lineages of us. Every word, a reaching towards each other. And you're not alone, we got each other. Isn't it divine being this way? It's never too early to start teaching these love languages and planting these seeds of assurance. Just thinking about it makes me wanna sing the whole queer lexicon to the tune of the ABCs to every newborn baby. Asexual, bisexual, cubs and dykes. Train a child up the way that they should go, says the scriptures. And I want them all to go queerly, go freely, go in belonging. I want us to raise a whole generation of kids who never learn to hate themselves or to treat others like monsters or that there's anyone even that God is against. This is indeed part of my queer agenda, to expose children as early as possible to all the possibilities of their beautiful becoming, to leave no doubt that whichever way their love blossoms and their gender blooms, And their body unfurls, they will be protected, cherished, celebrated, loved. In the world as it is, to even begin to balance out all the message otherwise, these things cannot be said enough. So we say them in every form that they take across languages and cultures. We say them as early and often as we can. We say them especially when they're not welcome. We say them with love, and we've got, we say them with all the love that we've got. And we will never, never stop. Amen.